Thanks for downloading show 117 of the C-Suite podcast, the uh, ninth in our special series of episodes that we're recording in partnership with the European PR agency Taito and its own Without Borders podcast, where we are interviewing leaders of unicorn companies to find out about the key issues, pain points and challenges that startups face and how they can address them with a strategic approach to marketing and communications. My name is Russell Goldsmith and once again, I'm hosting this unicorn interview with Taito's founder, Brendan Craigie, and joining us both online is Adrian. Nussenbaum, co-founder and CEO of Miracle, a global leader in online marketplaces that just recently announced its unicorn status. So welcome to the show, Adrian. I thought it'd be good if you can maybe start by providing us with a quick overview of Miracle and uh, just explain what you're doing differently to other e-commerce platforms and businesses. Well, first of all, thank you for having me on the show. It's a pleasure and uh, looking forward to the conversation. Explaining what Miracle does is always a challenge because what we do is new and it's always hard to figure out. And I guess for, for you and as PR people, how do you explain something new, especially in a B2B context in software? So in a very simple way, Miracle provides the expertise, the technology and the partner ecosystem that allows businesses, B2B or B2C businesses, retailers, manufacturers, distributors, to launch and run an online marketplace. And that's really what we do in a very simple way. When we, when we get to your question about what is different, what we do differently, it's fundamentally the business, power, the business model that we power that is different. If you think of commerce for decades, commerce has been a, a very simple business model where a company manufactures or buys products and then sells them. And they make money by the price, you know, the difference between the price people buy and how much it costs to procure those, those goods or make those goods. As digital has emerged over the last 20 years, we've seen, the world has seen the emergence of a new business model, which people call marketplaces, platforms, just to kind of put some names. The, some of the pioneers were eBay. And today we all know about Amazon, Alibaba, Uber, Airbnb, Farfetch, and, and many, many other platforms in all geographies. And so what those businesses do fundamentally different is that they make money not by making or buying products, but by connecting sellers and buyers of goods who then sellers will ship the products and those companies, Uber, Airbnb, Alibaba, they will take a commission on those sales. And that's really how they've been going. And those companies are now accounting for over 50% of online sales in the world. So Miracle, if you want to see it in a very simple way, is providing the leading technology that allows any business around the world to create their own version of Alibaba, Uber, Amazon, that fits their specific business line, industry, customer needs. So in a way, we are pioneering or helping people pioneer really a, a profound transformation in their, in their business model. I mentioned in the uh, intro just there that you've only just become a unicorn. So that was following this announcement that you've raised $300 million funding round. And so that's valued you now uh, or valued the business at, at $1.5 billion. Has that changed the perception of the company in any way? Yeah, it's good that you corrected. The, it has not valued me because if my <laughs> if my mom if my mom was on the podcast, she would probably say that I'm worth much more than than a billion five. <laughs> okay. I'm probably you know I have no value. There's no value. But anyways, let's be being more serious. Uh, obviously, it's funny. I was just on a call with my um, 
my co-founder, and, and he was telling us that since we announced the raise, our, our ability and velocity in recruiting talents, which is the core of what makes up the value of a company, specifically in our labs department, which as you all know, it's a highly competitive market. He was saying that our capacity to and velocity has had increased by almost 10x in, in the last couple of months. I think definitely it, it, it has, you know, put Miracle more on the radar. And, you know, as PR folks, it's hard to put a B2B company on the radar when you don't sell phones or you don't sell magic instruments or cars and stuff like electric cars, you know, when you sell a software that enables a new business. So it has put us more on the radar. And I guess it also... Is it the combination of what lies ahead, you know, IPO, a global leadership role, a potential acceleration of the, the increase of value? Is it that it reduces the perception of risk, which from our end is kind of strange coming, thinking of where we were nine years ago when we started, like we, we felt we've de-risked the business quite a bit already. But yeah, definitely um, it has created a lot of visibility and it has put Miracle on the map, which is good. And which is something we've not always been the best at in the past. <laughs> I might let Brendan come back on, on PRing B2B companies and how difficult or, or maybe easy that could be. But just on this whole growth plan, I mean, what's the plan to continue this? I, I guess you could call this hyper growth. The market we were addressing is a very nascent market because we are powering, as I was explaining in my long winded introduction, we're powering a, what we believe to be a profound and long-term shift in business models. We, we fundamentally believe that all the traditional players in the industries that we know, more or less, retail, distribution, manufacturing, they are at a crossroad because of, of the increase in digitization of their customer journeys. And we believe that part of the evolutions and changes they will have to make involve adapting their business model to a new business model that allows more scale, more faster growth, better ability to bring your ecosystem together. And this business model is fundamentally what marketplaces power. We are just at the beginning of our, of our journey. If you want to, you know, if I, if I kind of share some, some insider information from our fundraising, Roughly Miracle has today 250 plus clients from very large enterprises, Carrefour, uh, Siemens, Toyota, Airbus, uh, to upcoming digital native brands. So we really support a broad band of, of, of customers. In our plan, we our ambition by 2025, so five years from now, is to increase that number of customers by five. We are, you know, in a market where we believe there's probably 30, 40,000 companies that have the size, the brand, the ambitions, the, the ecosystem of partners that would allow them to create those, those marketplaces and run them and be at the center of them. So, so clearly we, we are at the beginning of the journey and to achieve our, our ambitions, number one, it's people, you know, since the beginning of the company, it's always been the same. You need to hire great people. And you need to retain great people and you need to grow great people. And, you know, whether it's in our labs team, it's our sales team, in our customer success team. So it's first and foremost, people investing in our products. And also, you know, as a company starting to look around us, if there's an opportunity for, for Miracle to be a, a consolidator of other uh, companies and technologies that play well in our, in our ecosystem. 
It's really exciting, Adrian. And um, as Russell says, I kind of like, um, for my sins, I've spent my whole career focused on the B2B communication side of things. So it's it's the area that I find most exciting and that things that are not obvious and need a bit of clever thought present quite an interesting challenge. But um, what do you think has um, been one of the, the biggest factors in your success so far? It may sound a bit uh, immodest, but I think the first thing has been a great vision. And it's easy for me to say that because it entirely falls under my my business partner, Philippe. So, and by that, it's not that, oh, there's there, he's a genius. He had a vision. It's the way we've stayed true to our vision. And frankly, it was difficult because when you start a company and you, you spend your days telling people, hey, this is the old world, but there's a new world coming and you need to adapt, you need to change. And people are looking at you like, you know, or they're seeing you as the devil who wants to disrupt the entire business. Staying true to this vision and knowing that this will, you know, come through at some point is really what has driven the culture of the company. We, If you ask people at Miracle, they all believe that they are working at a company that is pioneering something new, that is disrupting industries and businesses, that is helping companies evolve and grow and survive. And, and you have that spirit. And it's, a, it's a really real cement to the, the company culture. And, and, you know, speaking of culture, the second thing, you know, great vision, great, great people, that also has been hard. It's a very competitive market. Our rate in, in recruiting of people we, we interview is 3%. So it's, it makes it hard to scale at the pace you want. When I moved to the US to start a US business, we were nothing. Nobody cared about us in the US. Making sure that I was able to, to cement a team in Boston, where I was based, that's a pre-work-from-home-everywhere uh, uh, type of world, it, it, it makes it even more difficult to hire great people. So there is really that, this notion of, I think, the vision, the people, and the product. And one thing which is really uh, recognized by our clients is it's Miracle has built a product which encompasses a, a long experience of the founders in marketplaces, and, and there's a real know-how, it's purpose-built. So it's, it's that triangle that we try to stay true every day. I think um, it's interesting. I, I can totally imagine that you mentioned that you're getting kind of a 10x uplift in people contacting you, potential candidates and things. But at, at the beginning, you don't, you haven't got that kind of $300 million raise. So the vision is kind of essential, really, isn't it, to get people to, to buy into what you're trying to accomplish? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and it's been interesting to see how, you know, we've, we've had people come and go like every other business over the years. And we see that our most successful people are also the one who have weathered storms, but stayed on and engaged because they, they, they saw like the vision was not just a founder exclusive vision. It's something that's really shared across the team. Yeah, I like that. I like seeing people that have done a bit of distance with a company because they've been prepared to work through some of the challenges and things. Um, just thinking about the, kind of the disruption that you're, you're driving, you're opening up new possibilities with your, with your platform. But would you say that at the same time you're seeing the emergence of a new type of customer who maybe doesn't want to be just selling via Amazon or eBay? You kind of, is, that kind of an, is that kind of like a drive from customers that you're seeing? Yes, I, I think if you split our customers in a very simplistic way, you have incumbents 
businesses who have been around for decades, centuries sometimes, and you have new digital native businesses. And if you think of how those people go about thinking about their strategy, the incumbents, as we know, they've not led the emergence of digital because it was new. And as many incumbents, you first, you observe, you evaluate, you question. And sometimes, you know, when you wake up, it's sometimes too late. And Amazon exists because people let, let it exist at the beginning. They looked at it and said, hey, this is just a bookstore, ha, ha, ha. And, and we know what happened. Those businesses, those incumbent businesses, they, they have a choice. They are the turning point where they're either going to be consolidated into digital giants, which is, oh, I'm going to use Amazon as a seller. I'm going to sell on Amazon. When you see department stores, for example, who are saying, announcing that they're opening a store on Amazon, the world is upside down. The Amazon of the physical world now depends on Amazon's business to, to exist. So you, you, in, in, a, in a digital world, which accelerates this kind of consolidation, because it's all about anything, anytime, anywhere for the customers, you have businesses who are going to refuse to change and they are going to be consolidated or die. And you have businesses who are going to react and, and that's what our clients do. And they are going to say, you know what? I also can be the consolidator of my industry, my vertical, my ecosystem. And, and this is what we, you know, we refer to as platform pioneers. The businesses which are non-incumbent, but are, you know, digital native, for them, it's a completely di different paradigm. They start a business today in commerce and distribution, and they have to ask themselves a simple question. Do I embrace the business model of the past or do I embrace the business model of today and the future? Amazon, Alibaba, Airbnb, Uber, in some way, shape or form. And most businesses today, digital, they choose obviously the, the, the latter because they believe that's where there's, there's more growth. And the idea is not just to copy existing businesses, but to find and bring. So that's why, for example, we work with companies, digital natives, who are establishing marketplaces in um, highly created, uh, ethically sourced fashion. It's not just a one-stop shop where you find every clothes around. So they, they, are use, they, are creating, they are using the marketplace model, but they are bringing a differentiation. And, and that's really what, what, you know, what's interesting into what we're doing and have the opportunity to serve today. Just picking up on something you just said about when Amazon started and people saying, oh, they're only a bookstore. I mean, I don't know whether or not you can comment on this, but do you think there was always a vision to go beyond that or, or it, just, it just grew sort of organically? I was just thinking how other startups grow and suddenly you find actually what we do has, has far more opportunities than actually we set out. Yeah, so I'm not in a position to, to say whether Jeff B, Jeff Bezos, the day he started Amazon had this idea already that Amazon would add a marketplace very quickly and become what it is. I can tell from you know, his communications that it came very quickly. And what, what drove it was as Amazon was trying to grow online, they were investing massively in building a brand, in bidding traffic on their website and investing in their e-commerce infrastructure. And so they were building a, a, a database of customers and they, were, they realized very quickly that those customers were interested in buying more products. 
and that there was two ways they could get those products into the hands of the customer. There was the capital-intensive way, try to buy and source and stock the products. And there was the capital not intensive way, which was to launch a marketplace. And that's, you know, that's why very quickly in their journey, they launched a, mar- a first version of the marketplace and they stumbled upon, upon a, few, a few iterations. But there was always this idea, which is something we try to preach to our clients today. As a, as a, as a traditional business, you think of making money by monetizing the assets that you, you create or you buy. And which means, you know, you, you buy a furniture and you resell the furniture. You're monetizing assets. What Amazon did early is say, you know, not only are we going to monetize the assets, but there are other assets that we are creating. Like having tr- people who come to your website, it's an asset. And, and how could we mutualize that asset in order to create new areas of monetization? And, and this is exactly the concept of becoming a platform business. It's, it's thinking that there is value to generate by giving access to the assets that you've created and giving and monetizing this access. So if you're a manufacturer of industrial machinery and you have a lot of customers who come to you to buy their machinery, but then there's, there's an ecosystem of millions of parts and tens of thousands of parts providers, if you're able to bring those parts providers on your website and connect them with your customers better, faster, you're mutualizing your assets and you're creating value for the customers, for your distributors and for yourself. And that triangular value creation framework is fundamental of, of the shift in, in, in business models that, that we're seeing with, with those marketplaces and platforms. Really exciting. Could you maybe just elaborate a little bit more on, on what you mean by being a platform pioneer? You use it quite a lot in your communications. Um, is it about describing what you're doing or is it about describing the customers that are working with you? Are they the platform pioneers? The answer is a little bit in your, in the duality of the answer is a little bit in your question, but, but the, the initial goal was to, to find a way to recognize the courage of our customers and to, to emphasize on, on how pride, uh, proud they should be of the initiatives they're, they're taking, the risks they're taking. And so we, we, we like, you know, that kind of pioneer spirit. For example, Salesforce uses the trailblazers as a reference to their customers. And, you know, yes, there is a marketing element always in the culture that uh, just don't call a customer a customer. Uh, you know, in, in retail, you call them val- my valued guests. Or, But we wanted to really create kind of a club that would really recognize the merit of people that we work with. Because what you don't know is that very often they need to create internal alignment within their organizations. They, they need to be agents of a vision. They need to fight sometimes internally. They need to put their, their job sometimes on, on the line. And when you think of it, if the project doesn't work, they'll get into trouble. If the project works, it's not like they will be promoted to CEO overnight. But so, so really there is courage in recognizing people who believe that their, their life, where you spend 75% of it working, can be a better life if you're actually doing stuff which is innovative, which is transformative, which is new. So calling them pioneers and pioneers of the platform economy was, was kind of the way we, we decided to anchor our, our communication, the way we recognize them, the summits we organize and stuff like that. 
Let's go into a bit more detail then about Miracle Connect. So that's your your platform. It's described as bringing together sellers, partners, and marketplace operators. Do you want to just tell us a little bit more about how it works and, and where you see it heading next? Miracle Connect is really, in a way, reflective of this, you know, this expression which which says you, you put your money where your mouth is, something like that. As a business, we explain every day that you have an opportunity with digital to consolidate your ecosystem and to be at the center of an ecosystem because the assets that you provide to that ecosystem are central. They are the biggest common denominator. So if you think of Miracle, at this point of our journey, it's 250 plus live marketplaces around the world. It's 40,000 sellers connected and selling onto one or many of those marketplaces. It's also dozens of of technology partners who are providing technologies and, and services that support the sellers or the operators of those of those marketplaces. So with Miracle Connect, we we realized that the biggest common denominator amongst all those people is Miracle. It's that that technology we have built, which is a if you think the anchor onto which connects all those parties, and we we could bring value to all of them by creating really an online platform where they also can connect together easier. So. If you're a seller today and you you want to sell on 10 Miracle marketplaces, you basically need to connect individually with those 10 marketplaces. With Miracle Connect, you are now able to create one connection and automatically connect with all of them. And it's it's a circular type of of economy and platform. So that's really the the goal behind Miracle Connect. So you, you touched on earlier, Adrian about the fact that you're kind of working with companies of different sizes. So, you know, so yeah, we know that you're working with Best Buy Canada and Kruger, but then at the same time, you're doing a lot of work with digital natives like Coravin and, and Motherly. It sounds kind of like there's kind of equal possibilities for those different size organizations. Do you see that sort of, you're having a bit of a, a democratizing effect on the e-commerce space in that respect? Yeah, I think the, once again, to what I was saying earlier, the, the common denominator between those, those four businesses is that they have created assets and they believe that they can aggregate a broader ecosystem around those assets. So if you think of Best Buy Canada, what is their asset? Great brand, great stores, years of serving customers in the electronic space. It's a product universe where Best Buy may have 100,000 products, but they could be selling 5 million products. Kroger, great grocer, same thing. They're selling fresh, grocery, but people also want a lot of other products. Motherly, they've created a great content destination for pregnant women and post-pregnancy women. There's an ecosystem. So Coravin, unique technology to pour wine without opening, uh, removing the cork. Same thing. Every time you have the ingredients of assets, focus, ability to aggregate an ecosystem around you to, to provide more to the customers. And it goes back to that, that same point. You know, Do you want to be consolidated? which is Coravin selling on Amazon? Or do you want to be also a consolidator, which is Coravin saying, you know what? I can aggregate a community of other products for wine aficionados who don't want to go and buy their stuff on Amazon necessarily. And presumably on that, in respect to that last point you just made, people can be both, right? Absolutely. I mean, to the extent that, uh, I mean, to the extent that Amazon, as, as we've seen in the past, has... I would say a, a business model that 
results sometimes in, in negative experiences for its partners, which can be in two forms. One of them is, I call it, you know, being Amazon uh, basic basic-ified, <laughs> which basically means uh, you sell great products, Amazon sees they're great and they have them made under their own label and, and they list them first and you're a bit behind. And the other thing is, as a seller on Amazon, you're exposed to uh, the ability uh, that Amazon may have to cut you off, de-rank you. To... So our customers are establishing their marketplace in a, in a stronger uh, spirit of partnership with their, with their partners. That's great. And how important do you see kind of like the focus on B2B e-commerce as being for Miracle's long-term future? It is today 40% of our business and will be uh, by, you know, 2025, 75% of our business. It's a much broader and deeper market because B2B is a very generic word that spans from (laughs) wholesale distribution of uh, pipes and toilet equipment to uh, healthcare products, all the way to manufacturers of planes and reactives, or it's an endless world, B2B. Exciting. And could you t- talk a little bit about the culture that you've built? I you know, understand that you've kind of ensued the typical Silicon Valley culture. You've obviously got a lot of roots in, in France. What, what's, what's that, how's that kind of ended, ended up uh, in terms of how you would define your culture? I think our, our, our culture is anchored around um, around a set of uh, of values if i if i kind of um, oversimplify them would would be this idea that we are a disruptor we're we're like we created our market and many tech companies they always say we create our category we create but it's fundamentally when you ask them what is their benefit they'll say uh, we're doing some we're helping do something faster or better compared to what exists. Miracle, we didn't come and say, hey, uh, you're using this software and you can do it in 10 minutes. With us, you'll do it in five minutes. Or it, it, There's not this notion of a... So it's really a center piece of our culture, which is you have a notion, to, how do you make it happen? You need to be experts because you need to be trusted by the people you are, you are going to sell to. You need to be very team oriented. And, and once again, everyone says, yeah, we're a big team, we're a family, we're this. But in our case, if you try to run solo, you, you will very hardly succeed in convincing people to embrace the vision that you're, that you're selling them. So, so there is this notion of expertise, there is this notion of team, and there is this notion of hard work. And I think work hard is a bit taboo in some uh, tech uh, cultures. And I guess, you know, um, we don't have nap rooms. We don't have open snack bars everywhere. We don't have on-site laundry. But at the same time, we don't expect you to, to live in the office because we feed you, we wash you, and we entertain you. We also expect you to have a life. And I think that in France, we, we often say that we work to live and we don't live to work. And I think that uh, seeing how... It's the number one destination for tourists in every year. There, there has to be some truth in that. And it's not just wine and cheese. And so I think one of the, one of the interesting challenge, having built a, a company that was born in France and, and now has 50% of his business on the other side of the, of the ocean, the Atlantic Ocean, is, is trying to blend the best of both worlds. And it's, it's, it's difficult. 
communication, values. Uh, for example, you know, during COVID, we, we have, if you ask people in France, 95% of them, they say they want to go to the office. If you ask people in the US, 22% of them said they want to they be in, in the office. It doesn't mean that people want to work or not work, you know, and one would argue, oh yeah, they want to be in the office to smoke cigarettes and have coffee with their friends. Others would say, oh, they want to work from home to be in their PJs and work their dog. I'm joking, but there is an over, overcoming those cultural uh, biases is also a, a very important challenge when you're, when you're trying to, to grow a company uh, into a global company. And when you're, you're trying to establish a software leader in a world where traditionally, if you want to be a software leader, you need to be a US company at, in some ways, it's, uh, it's also an exciting, uh, an exciting journey. What, what was it like for you personally moving from France to Boston? It was not completely new because I, first of all, I had started my first business in New York in 2000. So I, I there was not a cultural shock. My, my, my wife has dual citizenship. My, my kids have dual citizenship. I, but it was a very big challenge because, first of all, there was the uh, you can't fuck up call, you know, pressure, which it was big. Because you are kind of that pioneer yourself who, you know, it's like, yeah, I'm going to go and seek gold and uh, you want to end up uh, drunk in a, in a bar uh, like some of the, the cowboys in, in the Wild West. So there was that pressure. There was the um, how long is it going to take? Is it going you know, to work? You, you, you land, uh, you need to hire people. I've made tons of hiring mistakes. I've had tons of people join and resign three months later. Like the, the time it took to cement a core team, which is still there today, four years in, probably 12 months, the, the time it took to, to get to a level of business traction where you're like, I don't know if I'll be Microsoft, but I'm going to make it some way, somewhere. It probably took 18 to almost 24 months. And so, so that was kind of the hard part, which was, uh, ev- you know, everyone's looking at you, you've raised money to do that and understanding the, the local codes. Most of the French entrepreneurs, for, it's funny when they come, they give me a call sometimes and they say, yeah, can you share your experience? I say, okay, so there's a few things you're going to go through. First, you're going to be told you need to invest more in communications and PR. And you're going to say, well, this is complete bullshit. Uh, I'm French. I know what I need to do. <laughs> say, no, you gotta, you gotta, you know, you got to play uh, and respect the rule. I'm going to say, oh, you're going to complain about salaries. You're going to say, I don't understand this person. She's making much more money than uh, the same person in France. And uh, and she leaves the office at 5 p.m. Uh, in France, the people are still in the office at 7. Like my French accent, I hope. But so all those questions, they always come, come, you know, you, you and, and, and so, you know, you get to a point where you say, how can I, play the game, but bring my, my little something to, to the game. And that's really uh, what we try to do. Just coming back to the culture thing, but also you're talking about the whole COVID situation at the moment. I mean, how it, it'll just be interesting to know how you've managed to, you know, obviously working with teams remotely and now globally as well, how you've managed to keep that same culture. Because, um, I mean, just for example, just speaking to, to a couple of the guys in your team while we, you know, we're prepping for this interview, they said they'd been working from home since March. They haven't been into the office. So how you managed to, to keep that culture as how you've wanted to grow it over time? So first of all, my answer will be a transitory answer because we're still in it. 
and we're still evaluating the the potential positive or negative impact of uh, of this uh, work from somewhere else phenomenon. To give you an idea, recently I asked our HR director what was the percentage of non-Boston-based people we hired before COVID and post-COVID. And before COVID, it was 10%. Post-COVID, it's 52%. Obviously, hiring people in Boston was a core driver of our hiring strategy. And it was a, something that was a constraint on our hiring. I don't know yet what the impact will be of having so many people not in the office, so many people new, so many people who have never met each other in real life, so many people who have not woke the the cafeteria uh, having random spontaneous conversations with fellow co-workers I, I don't know what the impact will be i miss seeing people personally i miss the open debate i i miss uh and my instinct is we would have been better without that i think that you know obviously people have been great they fully embraced the situation they've two days ago i i, I was speaking to one of our team members and i was telling her, if you don't go out now for an half an hour walk, I will fire you. Obviously, I, will, I was not going to fire her because I really like her and she's great. But I was like, you, you got to breathe. You got you to gotta go out. You got to pace your, your time. You got to... So, you know, we've tried, like we, we're doing, we, we started, we had stand-ups every day after 40, 60 days. We said, okay, now that's, you know, let's go three, three times a week. Then we moved to two times a week. They became very kind of casual. Now we're trying to make them more, I would say, development oriented. We have town halls. And personally, and that's really personal, I, I really look forward to a, to a world where people are back in the office. Maybe, you know, with probably a different approach to flexibility, which is clearly not the forte of French people when it comes to office presence. But I, I think it will be better ultimately. What about from a business perspective, though, in terms of COVID? I mean, I know it's a difficult one to to assess, but if if there's more drive towards online purchasing because we can't at the moment physically shop on certain, you know, certainly here in the UK at the moment, it's you know essentials only kind of thing from from physical shops. I mean, has has that helped in in your success this year? I mean, obviously it's been you know such a difficult and unpredictable year, but has that made an impact or? or is that an irrelevant um, issue? I think there's different ways to look at it. First of all, our customers have been able to better adjust to COVID thanks to their marketplace. We had customers who literally had stores shut down. Their even their e-com operations were not functioning. And the only thing they could sell were products on their marketplace. So literally, they stayed afloat thanks to the, the marketplace. We had a lot of clients who shifted their merchandising and assortment strategy overnight by leveraging their marketplace. So, so that was good for our clients and obviously their employees and, and, and their customers. The trend towards marketplace did not wait for COVID. If you look at the last five years, marketplaces have gone from 25 to over 50% of online transactions. So there is a trend. Clearly, this trend has accelerated in the last uh, in the last few months and from from a miracle standpoint we have seen more and more businesses kind of move up marketplace in the priority chain you know marketplace when i started this company marketplace was never in their priority chain then it became top 10 but ultimately only the top 3 get really done 
And now we're, we're, we've seen that we are really progressing up to be top one, top two, which is good for, for our clients. So, and, you know, like, I'm going to quote my, uh, you know, my, my favorite uh, British person, which I have his, his memoirs here, uh, Sir Winston. He has this uh, something like in every great crisis lies a great opportunity, which he kind of shares with Einstein, which, which is kind of good. Yeah. COVID is a, is a, is definitely a great crisis that, that will uh, push businesses to accelerate their, their needed transformations. Changing tack slightly, obviously a big focus of these, this podcast series is talking about communications and we're kind of the re- one of the kind of inspirations behind the series is to pass on lessons to other um, CEOs and leaders around sort of issues around communications. And we're wondering whether you might be able to share what your biggest communications challenge has been along your your journey and career. The one biggest. <laughs> uh, no, I I think when I when I came to the US, I hired this guy. It was not a great hire, but. He, he always said, uh, you know, Adrian, uh, fake it till you can make it. And when it comes to communication, I think that my biggest challenge and opportunity has been to understand what that expression meant for me and how should I resonate with it from, a, from an investment, from a messaging, and from a culture standpoint, which are all the things that are reflected in, in, in communication. So how much do you amplify your message? We are the, the, the biggest, transformative, greatest innovation of all time since fire in the Stone Age, you know? Or uh, the French version, uh, we are a uh, SaaS technology built in Java that allows uh, to, to create uh, online marketplaces for third-party sellers, you know, like... Where do you where do you go on that kind of spectrum? And so really it's ongoing. And I have I'm lucky to have also you know great people in, in our team, but it's always trying to understand where should we position ourselves in, in that how can we at the same time be a no bullshit company, but don't be a boring company. Yeah. And and I think especially in B2B, as we were saying, you know, like uh even when you raise 300 million and you become a unicorn. A lot of the, the press, they say, yeah, but, you know, we don't like to talk about funding. We talk about products that impact people. So you try to say, yeah, but, you know, indirectly as a company, we, we're really impacting people as consumers and, and people who keep their jobs. And, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah that's already uh, three levels down from, uh, <laughs> from what we... So, so there is this uh, ongoing questioning of, like, you know, how do you build a brand in B2B? There, you know, in communication, there is this theme around category creation, which has given rise to, I would say, a whole religion of, of practitioners. And, 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 and it's still, you know, for us, it's still a work in progress, to be very frank. And, but I always refer to that kind of, you know, am I faking it in an honest way or am I on, on the verge of being dishonest in the way I, 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 I and, and that's what we personally, we don't want to go. And sometimes we see companies and competitors go across the, the, the border and we're like, this is so unfair. This is full of shit. This is a, sorry for the, the cursing on your podcast, but, and, and it you know, it really brings up questions like how can people, how can people and go out and say 
big lies and 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 still you know get away with it it is a very fine line yeah like where where you cross that line from being just telling an, a a good story to telling something which is complete fiction yeah i i heard a great question actually and I, I, I wish i I could credit it to someone where I got it from, but I can't, but I'm going to use it anyway. Just picking up on, again, what, what you're saying, it, it was in an interview, uh, someone was saying, um, like, if, if your company didn't exist tomorrow, would you be missed? And I'm just, I'm just like intrigued to hear what you were saying there. What, what's your answer to that one? <laughs> it's, a t- it's a tough one, isn't it? I, I, think, I think the big picture answer should honestly be no. That's the French answer. <laughs> but I think if, we, if you ask our clients and you go back to being more closer to the ground, they will tell you if it weren't for Miracle, we wouldn't, have, we wouldn't be live so fast. We wouldn't have such a reliable, scalable platform. We wouldn't benefit for, from so much expertise. We wouldn't have grown our business by 20, 30, 40% highly profitably. And, you know, they would have looked for other ways, but I, I think in a way the market we serve exists. So once a market exists, it needs people to be at the forefront of serving that market. And that is what Miracle is. During COVID, the French government reached out to us in the early weeks of March, because like in many other countries, there was a complete shortage of PPE products, so masks, shells, gowns, everything for like essential business and healthcare workers. And we, you know, we're a well-identified company in, in France. The minister actually called my business partner and said, hey, uh, Philippe, can you do something about this situation? And Philippe said, uh, yes, we, we can stand up a marketplace and that will connect suppliers of PPE products with demand for PPE products. And so in 48 hours, we launched a platform called Stop COVID-19, where we were able to onboard initially dozens and hundreds of suppliers all from all over the world, from China to France to South America of, of mass gels. And, and it's millions today. It's over 150 million products that have been sold on this platform, which we've kind of, oh, I mean, we've kind of, we've operated for free. And so, you know, Going back to your question, you know, uh, what would the world be without your platform? I can say that without the Stop COVID-19 platform, a lot of people would have probably uh, been in, in very dire uh, uh, conditions. So it's, a, it's our modest contribution to, to our society and communities. That is a very good answer to a curveball question that I threw at you. I'm very impressed with that one. But that's a brilliant story as well. Very, very good. Very impressed. No, it's a great story. And and just sticking with going back to the theme of, of communication. So you kind of outlined your kind of Achilles heel or the thing that you're grappling with all the time in terms of the fake it to, to you make it point that you made. As you've been grappling with that, you know, what's the kind of best piece of advice anyone's given you on communications? I don't know if it's one person who gave me a, a piece of advice or if it's kind of my interpretation, but I think that the key to successful communication beyond, you know, being creative, uh, obviously, if you do bad communication, you do bad communication. But I think the key is to consider it as a program and not just as a project, as a one-time project. And I think if if you approach it like that, it helps a lot solve all the short-term dilemmas that you will have around 
ROI. Well, if I spend X on PR compared to X on Google AdWords, uh, how, how do I compare the, the return on investment? And, and, and then, you know, what I'm saying about considering it as a program, it doesn't mean that you're going to say, oh, yes, it's a program. So I, I, it's in three years, four years, because, you know, but it's really as something that needs to, to be deeply integrated in everything you do. So, for example, we used to have a very siloed approach to, to what we did in marketing in general. We would do a, a customer event. We would write a piece of content. We would uh, uh, attend a partner event. We would record a video with a, with a customer. And those things, we would realize that, oh, what if we had actually treated them as a, as a holistic thing? How much could we have amplified the message? And how could that kind of be phased in our, in our communication plan? And so this is really what, what we are working towards more and more, is to, to really approach things as a... Um, like now, for example, we say uh, no more communication without a client and a partner involved. That's it. Like if I see one thing where we go solo, I'm like, why? You got to explain why, why we went solo. Once again, as a B2B company, it's like, okay, once we've raised money and announced the round and done the PR around the round, we got to come up with, with other things. And, um, and so what are the other things in B2B? It's customer launch, customer success. If you involve more the customer, more the partner, the customers of your customers in those stories, suddenly your, your, your communication can be much more structured, have, have a broader reach and, and be more long lasting. So that's kind of my learning. Adrian, we've probably kept you about 10 or 15 minutes longer than we promised we would. We've got one final question for you. It's actually something we've, we've asked all our, our guests during this Unicorn series. If you were to go back in time and speak to your old self, what guidance would you give to yourself about communications and what steps would you encourage yourself to take in order for you and, of course, your business to excel in uh, communications? That's a difficult question, but I think there's, there's um, and that's where, you know, not pre prepping for the question becomes a, <laughs> becomes a burden. But <laughs> no, but more seriously, I think, and, and it's going to be specific to, to us, but there's two things. And one I've kind of talked which is what I just said, which I could sum up as like always prefer surround sound to uh, one, one, dire one directional uh, sound when it comes to communication. So always think about how can it be surround sound. And the second thing is when you localize, I, mean, I would say, okay, localization does not equal translation if you want a, a formula. <laughs> I'd agree on that one. Adrian Nussenbaum, thank you so much for joining us online today. Thanks, Adrian. Best of luck with everything. No, thanks to you. And uh, it was a pleasure, Russ and Brendan. Thank you. Enjoy the chat. So, uh, Brendan, what did you think to that conversation with Adrian? Uh, no, I really love that. I think it's always very interesting talking to people that have kind of lived and operated in different countries and cultures. And you probably could say that there's not many places are more different than, say, France and, and the US. I thought the point he made about the importance of, of vision and how how that how valuable and, and critical that was at the start of the, the, their journey in terms of getting people on board was um, was a point that that really resonated with me. I thought the point he made towards the end about communicating in surround sound rather than kind of uh, in sort of single channels, I think, is a, is another really key point which 
means that you get much more value out of everything that you do from a communication standpoint. And then I thought it was a very insightful point he made about where do you find the balance on that line when, you know, the fake it till you make it. Not everyone kind of feels comfortable going out there and stepping beyond that line where it's something that they're kind of, you know, making things up. So again, a really point well made. And um, so I think people are going to really enjoy uh, this episode. That's great. Well, that actually wraps up this episode. So of course, if you want to find out more about Miracle, their website is simply miracle.com, but with the spelling M-I-R-A-K-L.com. We'd love to hear your comments on today's chat. You can share them on our Facebook page, on our LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. They're all linked from the top of the website at csuitepodcast.com, where you'll also find all our previous shows and supporting show notes, plus links to where you can subscribe for automatic downloads of each episode uh, via the likes of Spotify and Apple. And if you've liked what you heard, then please do give us a positive rating and review. Uh, You can also subscribe to the Without Borders podcast from our partners at Taito and all the details for that are on their website. Just head to taitopr.com and uh, click on the podcast link in the top navbar. If you are a unicorn leader yourself and you'd want to be part of this series, then please do get in touch via the contact form on the website at csuitepodcast.com. Plus, of course, anyone can get in touch with us too with any feedback you may have. And finally, if you want to reach out to me, you can do that via Twitter using at Russ Goldsmith or you can find me on LinkedIn. But for now, thanks for listening and goodbye.